0: Uh, We're looking for Matthias. We're in Acts chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 15 and we'll read to, to verse 26. Bless you. Bless you. Before I get into the text, let me, I'll I'll recount the context for you, so you can kind of look up, don't worry about it, we'll, we'll read in a little bit. If you are somewhat familiar with the Gospels, the New Testament, Jesus began an earthly public ministry with a dunk in water, a baptism. He went to the Jordan River and got baptized by John the Baptist, and from that moment in that booming voice, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, with that dove descending on him. That was the inauguration of now a public, full-time, itinerant ministry of Jesus, which lasted over three years. Most say maybe three and a half years. And in this season and time of ministry, right out of the gate, he starts calling people. Matthew and Andrew and Peter and and everywhere he was going, people started to take notice of Jesus. You know, it was a person that you would kind of like second look at. You were like, well, what is it about this guy? And as he spoke, he spoke differently. He spoke very confidently with authority. He spoke about God in the kingdom of heaven. And as he walked, the way he carried himself, there was something concrete about him when he would ask somebody, would you come and follow? There was something about the magnetic nature of his presence that people were willing to leave livelihood to do so. And so he begins ministry and people started getting healed. The blind were seeing, the deaf were hearing, the lame were walking, lepers were being cleansed, things were happening. Thousands of people started gathering just like that. He found himself on a hillside speaking to a multitude of people, feeding them with some scraps from a little kid's lunch. And there were miracles happening left and right. Towards the end of his ministry, he began to point people to what was imminent. He began to say, I've been telling you about this, but the Son of Man, I will be delivered up And I will be crucified, I will die, but I will also rise again. He was telling his disciples this, and that circle that surrounded him. And that day did come. That last Passover, Judas leaving that meal, coming and meeting in the Garden of Gethsemane with some soldiers, with high priests, Jesus being taken and arrested, and the disciples scattering like scared sheep. Jesus is marched in front of person after person as a sinner, as a criminal. And yet there was something about him that was still confident. He comes before Pilate, he comes before the chief religious leaders, he comes before anybody, and he speaks with such eloquence and authority still. By the words of the crowd, he was delivered up to be crucified. And this was all a part of God's eternal plan. He dies on a cross, breathes His last, and He is buried in a tomb. Three days later, according to His word, He rises. Women hear about it. The disciples hear about it. And they all come flocking to this place. And over the course of a month and a half, Jesus visits with various people, speaking to them, walking with them, eating with them, feeding them. And then finally, He's about to ascend into heaven. The sky, whether it's splits, whether it's cloudy, whether it's sunny. Jesus, He's about to ascend. And He speaks to the group that was around Him, a little over 100 people. And He says, I don't want you to leave this city. Don't leave Jerusalem, because i got a promise for you. What I spoke about, you will receive the Holy Spirit. You will be empowered for ministry. You will be a witness of mine. And so the disciples, after he ascends and these angels appear saying, stop looking into the sky. He's going to come back in the same way. These disciples travel a short distance and they find themselves back in the city in an upper room of a place and they, from that night, begin to pray. And it says they continually prayed. They had fellowship with one another. This group of 11 was the 12 minus Judas, plus the, the family of Jesus and plus the other inner group of a little over 100 disciples that were very, very consistent, and they began to pray and to gather. And in this setting, Jesus ascending, giving the final words, saying, don't leave this place because you're going you're to get something very, very important. And in this context, one of the 11, namely Peter, he stands up and he begins to proclaim a message to this gathered group of disciples. This is where we pick up our reading in verse 15. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together. And this is what he said, brethren. The scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his portion in this ministry. That's speaking of Judas. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language that field was called hakeldama, which is field of blood. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no man dwell in it. And also it says, his office let another man take. It is therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. And so this is what happens now. They put forward two men. Joseph, who was called Bersabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias, and they prayed. And they, they said, Lord, who knows the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you've ever thought about Matthias. This little guy here, whether he was little or not, I don't know. But have you given thought to Matthias at all in your reading of the book of Acts up until now? You know, I've I've known that these two were there. And as I dove into this chapter a little bit more, I began to find a lot of nuances that I feel as though God was speaking to our church and wanting to apply to our ministry here at City Chapel. And what I want us to know from this passage, at least as an underlying context about Judas, is this. Judas didn't spoil God's plan. He fulfilled it. And I think that's important to mention at the beginning here. Because Judas was considered an adversary, an enemy. When Peter was quoting from Psalm 109, Psalm 109 was a psalm written about adversaries and, God's, and, God's, and asking for God's vengeance upon them. And so when Peter quotes Psalm 109 talking about Judas, that somebody should replace his office, he's actually referencing that in line with a person who is an adversary. And so, when we think about quote-unquote adversaries or or quote-unquote enemies, people who do us wrong and harm, who speak badly of us, or in some ways derail us from the mission that's in front of us, they have an influence and what they do is not welcomed and it seems to be a distraction. They're, t- they're taking us away from something. And Judas, as he was numbered among the 12, what he did caused a major disturbance amongst the disciples. Him bringing those officers, the arrest of Jesus, caused the disciples to scatter. And it caused a major thing in the emotional context of those early believers. Because a lot of them had amnesia. They had short-term memory. They did not remember the words of Jesus, that he would be delivered up, that he would rise again, that this was all a part of God's plan. And they were very distraught. And so Judas had this adversarial role in a sense, or at least he was looked upon in that way in this particular context. And when we look upon those that Harm us When we look upon those that have a very negative influence over our lives, we in some way think that they're spoiling something in our lives. That if it wasn't for them, I'd have more joy. If it wasn't for them, I wouldn't have wasted this time. If it wasn't for them, and if it wasn't for them, and if it wasn't for them, and we have all of these things in our minds. If we were only free from these people that have distracted us, that have taken us off course, my life would be so much better. And we think that at times. And so what we need to understand about Judas is that he wasn't a spoiler of God's plan. He was a person that fulfilled it. And so when you look at the enemies of your life, of those that derail you, of those that oppose you, of those that do things contrary to what you actually want, instead of taking that very finite, very in-the-moment perspective learn how to step back from that. Learn how to step back from that person, that season, the hardship, the hurt and say, God, do you have a plan in all of this? What are you trying to weave together and have that bird's eye view? I think that's a very important thing to take out as we talk about Judas and his office being replaced, what Judas actually accomplished by his betrayal. Yes, it led to his own suicide, which is not a pleasant thing, but it does show that he felt remorse, that he had a tremendous weight of guilt on his heart. He threw those 30 pieces of silver back into the temple of the high priest and says, I don't even want this money anymore. And he goes out He lays down his own life because of guilt. It speaks of what was happening in his life. And so I know we can be hard on Judas Iscariot. But that was a part of the plan of God all along. And so I say that in hopes that you would relook at the hardships that you face and the people through whom those hardships come. I give that to you. So, this decision to fill Judas's spot. How did this come about? I, I mean, I, I wrote a few things down for you that they looked to Scripture for guidance. So Peter stands up in the midst of this group and he says, This is what the Psalms say. That Judas was going to, to this was the end of a person. That this is what was going to happen and this would be a desolate thing. But also that the office of this adversary that was numbered amongst us should be taken by another person. And he quotes Psalm 109 in this. And so there was a, a scriptural foundation to this decision to want to replace Judas. It wasn't a personal agenda of Peter. It wasn't just a decision made on a whim or crisis management. It was a prayer-filled, Scripture-saturated decision. And an interesting to note, and I give you this little illustration diagram, is that whenever you look at the Old Testament, you need to have the shell-kernel approach. And what is the shell-kernel? The shell is the direct context. The psalmist David writing about his adversaries, asking for God's vengeance over them and all of these things. That's the direct context of Psalm 109. But inside that writing, inside those relationships that were happening those many years ago, that there was a truth on the inside and it was the kernel inside. And it was the truth or the principle or the thing that God wanted to communicate in a timeless fashion. And that's what we extract to our day today. Because that's what Peter did. As Peter was quoting the Psalms, he was taking the truth of that Psalm and saying it was happening there, but I take it and I apply it to our day, Peter speaking, that day when he was speaking to those disciples. And that's what we need to do. When you read about scripture and the story of Moses, or you go back to Father Abraham, or you read about Paul, or, or Esther, and you read about Ruth, or you read about Philemon, or you read about all of these other people that are in old or new. That is a situation that was very particular to that context, but inside of it, there is a truth. So when Paul writes a letter to the church in Rome, and he writes, Dear Romans, da-da-da-da-da, That was one letter by one man to a church in the city of Rome. But from there we can see so much truth that we take to our day, here and now. And so learn to look at Scripture with this lens. Kernel of truth on the inside that is within the casing of the context in which it was written. And this is exactly what Peter was doing. So it was a Scripture-filled decision. The second thing is that Peter... And that early group, they used what some have called, quote unquote, sanctified wisdom. What is that? Sanctified wisdom. And it wasn't a direct thing that God said, this is what you should do. It wasn't an audible voice, something that happened that says, this is, you need to have this. But as Peter and those early disciples understood the journey of the work that was ahead of them and the responsibilities of the role that was needed, they made a sanctified wise choice, a decision. They said, we need to fill this slot. There's a scriptural precedent for this. But how are we going to do it? This person should have been with us from the very beginning. From when John baptized Jesus until that very time where he ascended into the sky. Let's select from among us people that fit this criteria. And so they put two people forward, right? Justice and Matthias. And in Scripture, when you see people casting lots, especially when it was from the context of a believer, it was a very prayer-filled action. And it wasn't like a lottery. It wasn't just, all right, let's see, let's let chance or fate determine this. That's not what casting of lots in Scriptures was all about. When these disciples casted lots for these two people, it wasn't just who's got the longer straw when you pull two of them. It was saying, God, you control all things. We know that you reside above your people and creation. You cause things to move that shouldn't move. You cause things to stay still that shouldn't stay still. You can for sure direct us as we cast these lots. We have these two people that meet this criteria that we have put forth. Lord, would you select it? This was the mindset, the prayer-filled mindset of the disciples as they were casting lots for these two particular people. And so, why were these qualifications important? That they were there from the beginning. That they witnessed all that Jesus did, and right until the very end. It's important because the very last words of Jesus, he talked about, "You will be my witnesses." My witnesses. A witness is a person that testifies of what they have seen. Right? Have you ever seen a witness that, like, you know, they're like, oh, "I, uh, I heard." You know, that really doesn't hold water for witnesses in court. A witness is a person who has seen and experienced for themselves firsthand and they testify of what they have observed, what they have heard. And a witness of who? Jesus was saying, you will be my witnesses. And so Peter and these early disciples saying that this person should have been with us from the beginning until now, that is because Jesus' very final words to them before he ascended was, you will be my witnesses. And so the the role of the apostle, of that person who would take that office, they were to testify of Jesus. That's why it was important. And so now I turn the corner from the context, the direct happenings of our passage in Acts chapter 1. And I turn the corner now to the kernel that applies to our church. And How are we to empower ministry partners from among us? And I I, I chose each word here very intentionally. I'm talking about the empowerment, about establishing, raising, giving authority and responsibility. Ministry partners, because we are working as a team, And that's exactly what those early disciples were doing when they said, we have 11 amongst us that have remained, but there's a 12th spot that Jesus had installed. Let's fill this spot and have team ministry. Let's be a team of apostles. And so who are the ministry partners that we empower? But I'm also talking about that they're coming from among us. And there is a lot about recruitment from going outside and saying, okay, you know, we've got some needs as a church. How can we to bring other people in? That will be a part of it. But the focus that God was br- really bringing me down was identifying the folks within our community that have been around for a little while. And how can we empower those people, those folks, for a greater role in ministry? How can we give responsibilities and set them up in a place to serve God in a way that they haven't until now? And I thought about Matthias a lot over the preparation of this message because he was around from the beginning. He was a believer. He, 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 he said yes, right? He he was there when Jesus was being baptized. He was there when the lame were walking. He was there when the deaf were seeing. He was there uh, when the deaf were hearing. He was there when the blind were seeing. He was there when the multitudes were being fed. He was there when a dead child was being raised. He was there when they were being sent out, these disciples, two by two, and coming back with these amazing testimonies. But somehow, even though he was there and a believer, he didn't step up. It was like, if there was a threshold, he was just flying just under the radar. He was a faithful guy, both him and Barsabbas was. But there was something about Matthias where just he didn't kind of peek his head above ground yet. And he he was definitely involved, he was definitely a, a believer, he was definitely committed. But somehow he did not elevate that commitment, the role of service. And so he he followed and he, not cruised, but he walked along them. And in this time, as these 120 people were gathering and they were determining amongst themselves who meets this criteria, who is faithful, who has the capacity for leadership, who has the message in their hearts, And they brought these two. And Matthias, he just elevated amongst that group. You've all been in groups of of about 100 people. And there are people that rise to the leadership roles there. I mean, you just gather a dozen people and you give them a task and say you self-organize. The leader will actually, those who are are predispositioned to lead, they will organize the group. And say, "Okay, um, what can you do? Um, This is what we need to do. How about you try this and you try this? And those leaders naturally rise to the top. And Matthias was one of those people at that time. He was being pruned and cultivated by God through these three and a half years. And by the time Peter stood up and gave this message, there was something that shifted in the right place in the right time for this guy where the lot fell on him. And God said, you're my man. Now's the time to step up into a new role. You're capable. You haven't done it yet. You've been around and you are faithful. But now a new season for you. And I find that intriguing as I think about Matthias. Seasons shift, ministry context changes, our audience changes, leadership changes, methods change. There are so many things that change from season to season, year to year, and the rapid nature of our tech environment from day to day. You read the news today, it's changed from yesterday. Why are the methods so different? If you've ever worked in certain skills in your company, you have to be retrained, it seems, every year just to be on the cusp of what's going on and to be relevant. And so times change, seasons shift. And in this group of disciples for these eleven and these early disciples, Things were changing. Jesus was no longer around. That was a big change. The person that they looked to for strength, for courage, for direction. He was now no longer there in person. But he said, I'll give you my spirit and his spirit will come. But there was now no more visible Jesus with them. That was a major change. Judas had changed the scene a little bit whereas before the disciples could walk around, and yeah, maybe you know, there was half of the, of the population that looked very fondly upon them, but there was another major group within the, the culture of the day that looked upon them and started pointing and wagging their fingers at these disciples. But Judas effectively changed that, that, that makeup of the society where these disciples felt as though they had to hide a little bit, scatter, that this is now a dangerous time to be a follower of Jesus. And so that context had shifted. The authority of leadership was now shifting. Peter was taking more of a dominant role. He was the one that denied to Jesus not so long ago, and now he's taking this refreshed, strong, courageous leadership role. But what's important to note is that a person's maturation and readiness changes. If you think about who you were three years ago and who you are today, How much has changed? How much more do you know now? I mean, maybe you think, I'm changing for the worse. I don't know if you think that way, right? right? But if you think about it, the readiness and maturation of an individual changes. And this is the fault of having a predetermined position on somebody that we met years ago. And we had this idea of what they were like when they were in high school, and we meet them again when they're a 20 something or a 30 something, and we're like, ah, you know, we're already gauging who they are, and we don't even take into account that they could have matured from their mature ways, right? But that shifts. We grow. Matthias, when Jesus was being baptized, was a believer, but he was not yet a leader. He was learning as he was observing this entire way, each season. And by the time Peter stood up, he was ripened. He was ready ready to be taken off of the branch. And God's timing also changes. God directs us season by season with an eternal scope. That's what I love about God. Not only is he far, he's close. And I think we get the best of both worlds of God. Because He sees us from the vantage point of our entire lives. He's like, okay, birth, death. I see everything in the middle. And not only that, our life, which is this. Our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents. And He sees the generations. And He sees our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. And He sees all of this, human history. And then you take, you zoom back a little bit more. Oh, there's Adam. Adam. There's the second coming of my son Jesus. And there's our life. And so God is very far and he can see in this great perspective everything in human history, why he created Adam and Eve the way he did and why history will be consummated in the way that it was. Why the cross was exactly when it was. He sees all of that in one glance. He's that big. But then also he comes right into the moment. And He's right in the moment of our lives actually today. On this Sunday, October 30th of 2016, God is right here with us. He's living this day and as the clock ticks, He's there that next moment with us. As it ticks another, He's there the next moment with us. And so He walks us through each and every day of our lives yet with the perspective of it all. And so God's timing is based on His perspective of it all. What he sees us encountering 20 years down the line, he'll actually orchestrate something here today to prepare us for that encounter two decades later. We don't have the benefit of seeing in the future, so we don't really know that we're being pruned and and prepared for something that's a future occurrence because God sees that, but we don't. But God is walking with us. The timing today is just learn this lesson now. Just learn this one lesson here and now, and that will prepare you for the next lesson, which will prepare you for the next. And this is how God works in our lives. And so that teaches us, again, to step back a little bit. Don't let frustration overwhelm you. Don't let joy take you off the charts in pride. That successes and failure, when taken hand in hand, when joy and sadness, when receiving and losing, when war and peace, when love and hate, when tiredness and rest, when all of these things come hand in hand, we begin to see a grander, greater picture of it all. And this is what this reminds me of. Judas passing and that all happening. But Matthias, this guy that was just there, a faithful guy from the beginning, not yet ready for anything, but by three and a half years later, this guy was ready. Right? Right? And the reason why the timing was so great on this, our church was launched in March, of March 31st of 2013. That was three and a half years ago. Right? Three and a half years ago. The timing couldn't be more perfect for this message, actually. All right? And so I asked the question, who are the Matthias's of City Chapel? That there is a sense of faithfulness and a desire to want to serve to a greater degree. You haven't yet, but God is knocking. And the lots are being cast. And will it fall on you? Will God say, Now is the time to invoke the creativity that God has been cultivating, the ideas that He's been giving? Will all of those things now meet a season? that is shifting the timing that is coming i end praise team you has come back i hope this question sits with you who are the matthiases of city chapel i hope it sits with you today I hope it sits with you this week. And I hope that it prompts you. I hope that it prompts you to step out. To take the courage that God has been pruning and cultivating this entire time. Those ideas, those small little ideas that you get at night. You know, you know those small little ideas like, ah, it'd be great if. Ah, but no. <laughs> to take that and say, no, I'm going to take it back and I'm going to put it in my pocket and now I'm going to take it out and say, okay. And so I round with two applications. First is this. How is God calling you into deeper fellowship with your church body? Because it starts there. It's not about leadership where it starts. It starts about being connected. That's that's the beginning point because Matthias and Barsavis, they were connected people. They were there from the beginning and they weren't like just these little satellites just like floating way out there, orbiting just like, ooh, is it kind of safe now to come in? No, they were there. They were in fellowship. They just didn't actually take that greater role yet. And so how is God calling you into deeper fellowship with your church family? This is a very important first step. Before leadership in a body comes connectedness to that body. And this is important in the eyes of God. And secondly, how can I be more involved in God's work? I think this is also a very important question that the dreams and the visions and the thoughts that he has given to you, how can you then take that and bring it to another level of actually implementing and then augmenting the work of God in history? And this idea, I was preparing this week and we had gathered this last Friday for our Friday Upper Room Gathering. We had been praying and we had opened it up to the group about different things and we were actually saying, who are the Matthias's of our church? We started writing down names and all that, Right. And there was a summary list of, two days ago, our our, our prayer meeting, our prayer gathering. And it focused around deeper. And it was about having deeper prayer, worship, being deeper in the truth, getting deeper in relationship, and getting deeper into our community. It was about us as a church understanding that God is going to bring us into a new season now, that there's going to be another door that's in front of us. It will start by prayer, but it will be kind of prompted through intimate worship where we feel healing and freedom being experienced amongst us in our body, in our gatherings, how we are as a church. About diving deeper into the truth, knowing that I'm not just here to listen to messages, but God is calling me to learn how to teach and to get into Scripture, to get deeper in truth, in understanding God's revelation and deeper in fellowship, relationship with one another. That it's not just about, okay, we kind of gather every now and then, and there are a lot of deep relationships that have formed, but how can we be more pervasive and intentional about, as a church, let's get in deep fellowship, let's know the dirt of each other's lives, not so that we can judge, but so that we can be healed and agents of healing for one another, in deeper fellowship. But it points to the last one. How can we get deeper into the darkness of our community? How can we go from inward to outward? How can we as a small yet still young church say, God, we have these hands, we have these limited resources. Would you multiply it and would you help us get into the dark spaces that are out there? And help us to love with intentionality and passion and conviction. Help us to see miracles. Help us to be instigators of those miracles, conduits of those miracles. Help us, God. How can we get deeper into the involvement of your work in our community? And this is how we summarize this last Friday. And so I pray that... You would write this list down on your little sermon card, put it on someplace, and you just kind of think about that and meditate. And as you think about the question, is God calling me into a new season of serving Him? Is He calling me into a deeper season of being connected to my church family? And how can I fall deeper in prayer, worship, truth, in relationship? And how can I get deeper into the work of God in my community? May that resound with you today and throughout the week. Amen.